0: Thank you for praying. Let's stand together now, and Beth's going to come and read our scripture as we continue in our study of the kings.
1: In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord, that the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines, as far as Gaza and its territory. This is the word of the Lord from 2 Kings 18 1 8.
0: Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning, I want to begin with a question, and here is that question. If you were to ask the average unchurched person in America, what do evangelical Christians believe? What do you think they would say? Now, hopefully, some would would start with the name Jesus. We hope they would would connect that to us in some shape or form. Or maybe we hope they would mention the church or... Or even note some of our acts of service, the good things that that we do in Christ's name. But the reality is, I've asked many people that question. Some of you probably have as well. And more often than not, their answer is something like wealth, power, politics. What, What do you think evangelical Christians believe? It oftentimes falls into categories like that as opposed to those which are of our faith and of Scripture. And it would be easy to say if we heard that kind of answer from an unchurched person What's wrong with you? Why don't you know more about us? But the reality is if we are known for anything else Except our primary allegiance to christ and his kingdom That's probably less a problem of us being misunderstood And more a problem that that needs to be dealt with with some introspection Where we would look inside the camp and say what is it about us that? is giving off that impression. And how have we miscommunicated what is at the heart of who we are and and what we believe? Most importantly, how are we not known by the name of Jesus above anything else? As we've been going through this study of the kings, I've described some of these lessons as timeless truths and warnings that God gave to His covenant people Israel that are also a word for his covenant people today and that's us the church And today and I don't know for some of you if this will be sad news or happy news We have two weeks left in our summer of kings And today we move to a king whose name is probably very familiar King Hezekiah Whose reign as the king of Judah was bookended by the two evilest kings there ever were in these stories Hezekiah comes sandwiched in between his father Ahaz, his son Manasseh And then on the other side, we still are in a divided kingdom and in the northern kingdom We come to Hosea who is the last king Who will reign on the throne of Samaria the northern kingdom Israel before the Assyrian empire comes in the big kid on the block and they conquer them and they take them captive And what was known as the northern kingdom of Israel comes crumbling down for good. Hezekiah is in an interesting spot here in between these two kings, and yet we are told he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If ever there was a king who was set up to fail, it was Hezekiah. And yet God had his heart just as he had David's heart, And this morning and and next week, which are are our last Sundays in the series, in both cases, I'm going to bring us back to a word that we've said a lot as we've gone through these narratives, and it's the word legacy. And with that word legacy, Hezekiah is a reminder that a legacy of faith can start with just one faithful person. And that's so true. Hezekiah follows his father Ahaz, Ahaz, there are idols all over the land, there's evil everywhere, it would have been far easier for Hezekiah to just stay the course, to continue benefiting personally as he had watched his father do. But a legacy of faith can start with just one faithful person, and though Hezekiah's son did not carry on this legacy, here we are today still talking about Hezekiah as a king who did right in the eyes of the Lord, who followed after the ways of his father David, and in the generations that would follow, Hezekiah would continually be held up as one who did things right, and whose legacy was one of faithfulness before God. In verse 1, we're given some of the the details, the statistics we're used to seeing about the reign of a king. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. Verse 2 says he reigned for 29 years And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord Just as his father David had done And then I love some of the specifics we have in verse 4. He removed the high places He smashed the sacred stones that had been set up for Baal He cut down the Asherah poles and he broke into pieces the snake that Moses had made For up to that that point, the the Israelites had been holding up that bronze serpent and burning incense to it. They even gave it a name, Nehushtan. What's happening here is a reminder that even good things can become idols in our lives when we put them in the wrong place. Even things like the bronze serpent of Moses that God gave to them to hold up, not because the the serpent had power, Not because the serpent was supposed to be worshipped, but to remind them that God was with them, that God has power over all, that he would be faithful to them, that he would protect them. The bronze serpent was an object meant to evoke worship to God, not the object itself. Yet again, even good things when they're put in the wrong place, when they're treated like ultimate things in place of God or prioritized wrongly, can be destructive And they can become idols. We have many good things that we enjoy enjoy as people of faith. Many preferences that we all have about the way we worship, the style we enjoy. But those things too, our preferences, can become idols when they become our focus and not God himself. So too, we can worship our successes instead of the God who gave us those successes. And even the best things in our lives can become idols If we don't hold them rightly I love the way Sri Lankan Christian scholar Vinath Ramachandra said it He said when God is co-opted To bless our private or national projects Or when pastors compete For bigger and richer churches Or when worship is evaluated By how it makes me feel Rather than how we are transformed Into Christ-like service To the world We are practicing idolatry Even with good things The reality for us, though, is that most of our idols are not things like the ancient world. We don't have idols made of wood, metal, and stone, mostly. But they are still just as destructive. And the idols that we allow into our lives and into our church, they will suck the life out of us as people and as a church if we don't remove them, if we don't remember that only Christ himself is ever to be held in that position of ultimate authority. We never elevate anyone or anything else to that position because if we do, we too are practicing idolatry. One of the things that I see clearly with Hezekiah, for the majority of his reign, his main goal was to please and glorify God and not himself. And that's one of the reasons he is so set apart as a leader As a man of God, because his heart was for the glory of God. The next verses tell us more about it. Starting in verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord, and he did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against even the big kid on the block, the king of Assyria, and he did not serve him. And for that reason, from watchtower to fortified city, no matter who they faced, even the Philistines, God gave them victory as far as Gaza and all of its territory. It's really amazing when you consider all of this and and don't gloss over the fact that Hezekiah too had to deal with Assyria Just to sort of remind us who these folks are The capital city of Assyria was a city called Nineveh You've heard of that before Most of the time when we hear Nineveh we think of which prophet? Jonah And it was just a few generations before this that Jonah went to Nineveh To the capital of Assyria And he went there to proclaim destruction Judgment from God because of their wickedness Their vile practices, their idolatry and their sin but you remember when Jonah showed up in Nineveh something surprising happened Instead of the Ninevites trying to kill him because of his message they listened They they called for a a, a fast a, an act of repentance To say to God we we confess our sins to you. We want to trust you. Please don't destroy us And even though Jonah wasn't very happy about it God relented of the destruction that Jonah had prophesied He he forgave their sin And for a time, there was like this unbelievable awakening towards the Lord in Nineveh. But here we are a couple of generations later, and unfortunately that repentance and that spirit of faithfulness didn't last very long. Assyria is back to its old tactics, and in Hezekiah's life, they are using tactics to intimidate him and to constantly call into question whether or not Hezekiah and the people can really trust their God. Hezekiah, though, if you read through these stories in the next chapters, the rest of 18, 2 Kings 19, constantly Hezekiah trusts in the Lord. He prays fervently, and he listens to God's prophets when they speak the truth. And through all of that faithfulness, God, too, is faithful, and he keeps the Assyrians from doing to Judah what ultimately they will do to Israel in the north. We'll come back to Hezekiah in just a minute. But meanwhile, in the northern kingdom of Israel, Hosea is the last king. And whereas Hezekiah is a reminder that a legacy of faith can start with just one person, Hosea, the last king of Israel, is a reminder that generations of unfaithfulness to God can and will bring down an entire kingdom. So we look again at Hezekiah's... with. On the left side with the kingdom of Judah, Hosea his contemporary is the last king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And in the chapter we read, 2 Kings 18, we're given this a little bit more of the story of what happens with Hosea. Generations of unfaithfulness to God can bring down an entire kingdom. Starting in verse 9, that's exactly what happens. In King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. And so Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Israel. The king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Halah, in Gozon, on the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God but had violated his covenant all that Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded they neither listened to the commands nor carried them out Now I cannot believe that we have been in this series for 11 weeks and this is the first time I'm showing you a map Can you believe that? That is so not like me when we're talking about all these names and places but But Honestly, I've done this on purpose Because sometimes if we do a little bit too much of this we we think of this only in terms of history And we forget to put ourselves in the story and say what does this say to us? How does human nature play itself out even in these ancient stories with with which we feel like there's so much distance? And so what I want you to see with this map is not so much the geography but where you see the color blue Where you see the northern kingdom of Israel where Hosea is the final king usually it's called Samaria but I also want you to see those two cities Bethel and Dan that from the southernmost part to the northernmost part of the kingdom of Israel all of the things I'm about to read to you were happening everywhere. So wherever you see that color blue it's not just a reminder of the boundaries of the northern kingdom but see the pervasiveness of their sinfulness and their idolatry that covered over every single square kilometer of this this piece of land that God had given them. So if we were to go back to 2 Kings 17, the previous chapter, we get more detail about what was happening with Hosea, but also just a, a rundown of everything that led up to this moment. Why was the northern kingdom finally given over by God into the hands of Assyria? Here are some of the things, and again, picture all of this happening all throughout the northern kingdom of Israel. Second Kings 17, starting in verse 7, says, "...they worshipped the gods of other nations, and they followed in their practices. But they also followed evil practices their kings introduced to them. They did some evil things in secret, but they also did some others right out in the open, like building high places." Upon which they offered their sacrifices to the false gods all over their land. They set up sacred stones to Baal and Asherah poles. They set up a golden calf at Bethel and another one at Dan. They burned incense and did wicked things in front of their idols. They bowed down also to the starry hosts. They also sacrificed their children in fire. They practiced divination and sought omens. And sold themselves out to evil people. Though God continually warned them through his prophets in every generation, including Hoshea's, they were stiff necked like their ancestors and they would not listen. And here's the summary statement that chapter 17 gives us They rejected his decrees and the covenant he made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols, and they themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do, nevertheless they did. They worshipped idols, and they became worthless like them. Which is a really important point that I certainly would not want us to miss this morning as application. Just like the people of the ancient world, we also become like the idols we worship. And if we worship and elevate worthless things, worthless ideas, worthless attitudes, then, then we too become worthless just like those things. This kind of language that Second Kings use, uses is echoed in the book of Psalms. Psalm 115, for example, says it this way. But their idols are silver and gold Made by human hands They have mouths but cannot speak Eyes but cannot see They have ears but cannot hear Noses but cannot smell They have hands but cannot feel Feet but cannot walk Nor can they utter a sound with their throats Those who make them Will be like them And so will all who trust in them This is what idols do to us When we give our hearts Our commitment, our allegiance to to anything and anyone else besides the one true God, besides Jesus Christ as our King. This is what happens. Our eyes become blinded. Our ears stop hearing clearly. Our senses are dulled, including our thinking. It's dulled. We no longer listen to godly counsel. We no longer seek the wisdom that only comes from the Lord. We no longer live with common sense. Instead, we become like our idols, and if those things are worthless, we too become worthless. We're an awful lot sometimes like, even as adults, we're like that teenager who idolizes a singer and plasters that singer's picture all, all up over their room or now all over their social media pages, and they like all the same things as that singer, and they want to be like them and dress like them, and and even as adults we do the same thing we don't grow up we are desperate to find somebody that we can hold up as an example and be like them or or say that that idea that thought that's taken root in me now it's my number 1 priority and we become obsessive and in some cases we hold up people or ideas that are not only unbiblical but they are mean they are nasty they don't make us better per- people They don't make the world a better place. And when we idolize them or idealize them, guess what? We start acting like them too. It happens all over our culture. And just like Israel, when we worship idols, we become like them. And just like Israel, hear this, they not only became worthless like their idols, but they failed in their witness. What God had done with his covenant people was he said... I'm going to set you apart in such a way that you are to be different than the nations around you. God says, don't be surprised when the lost in the world act like they're lost. Don't be surprised that the nations that that worship idols are filled with darkness. Yes, they're going to do those things. They're going to act that way. They're going to commit evil. They're even going to try to bring that evil inside your life and your camp. But I have set you apart as my people that you would be a light in that darkness. And that when the nations look at you and those who are, are stumbling around in darkness look at you, they will see me because they will see me in my people who aren't like that, who don't worship idols, who follow my commands, who demonstrate love, who care about justice, who are the people that I've called them to be. Israel... Not only became worthless like their idols, they failed in their witness to the nations And so that leads to another really important question Not just how would people outside of the church describe us But how do we as the church in the 21st century avoid the same fate? That we would not give ourselves over to idols that we would not become worthless and useless And that we would not fail in our witness Well, the answer to that question is simple, but it's not easy It's simple, but it's not easy. But here's what it is We cannot worship anyone or anything else Bottom line, we cannot have any idols in our lives and in our churches If we want that kind of faithfulness and witness to god We cannot hold up anyone else as our perfect example except christ Christ is our example. He is the standard. He's not only our king, but He is the perfect model of godly living. And so, if we hold up anything that is not Christ like and call it good, whether it's a word, whether it's an idea, an attitude, or an action, if we do that, we hold up an idol. We don't point to Christ. When we are Christ like and the Spirit of God is leading our lives, we do not produce the rotten fruit of this world in this culture And the fruit that's being produced all around us right now. It's not just bad, right? It is rotten But instead when we are christ-like when he is our king when he is our example We will produce the fruit of the spirit and it's the fruit of the spirit that will Demonstrate the difference that will set us apart that will be light in the darkness Because believe me, the fruit of the Spirit definitely stands out in the times in which we're living. The fruit of the Spirit are mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. But I also want to read again the scripture we heard just a moment ago from Galatians 6. Because I believe it applies so clearly to what we see happening in both Israel and Judah in these stories. Do not be deceived, Paul wrote. God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what they sow. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And I, I, I think Paul was led to add this last verse because he knows that in a toxic culture and dark times like we live and like they lived in the first century, sometimes it's tiring to do good, sometimes it's exhausting to try to to be faithful, to stand out, and, and to not fall into those traps that are laid out in front of us at every turn. So Paul says, And also let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest, a harvest of life, if we do not give up. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow, but there is good news that when we sow faithfulness, We will reap faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Though generations of unfaithfulness can bring down an entire kingdom as we turn back to Hezekiah for one last time the final reminder this morning is that God is always faithful. He's faithful to his covenant and he's faithful to his covenant people to the end. Even when we too have so clearly broken our vows to him. We've been called to live in in a covenant relationship with God, and we have so clearly broken our vows as well. We've broken that covenant. We've failed to obey. We've worshipped our idols. We've profaned His name in many ways. But God has never, never been unfaithful to His covenant to us, which means His promises still stand. And no matter what would seem to pull us away to the right or to the left, if our feet are grounded in him and his promises we can't go wrong and we will not fail back to hezekiah again he he sandwiched in between a couple of unfaithful guys to say the least he lives at the same time as hoshea but also and listen to, i think this is so cool don't overlook it hezekiah got to hang out with isaiah like all the time it, it's amazing that Isaiah sort of comes in and out of these stories, but he is always there with Hezekiah, the Isaiah with a book of the Bible named after him. And Hezekiah is a reminder that yes, God was faithful to his people, Judah, during the days he led them. He protected them, he granted them victories, and most importantly, he received their worship again after it had been taken away. But he was also faithful to Hezekiah personally look at what happens in 2nd Kings 20 starting in verse 1 in those days Hezekiah became ill and he was at the point of death but the prophet Isaiah son of Amos, went to him and said this is what the Lord says put your house in order because you are going to die you will not recover Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him again. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears and I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. And in the meantime, I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend the city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. God heard Hezekiah's prayers. He promised to heal him. Isaiah confirmed it and if you read on Hezekiah still wants a sign he still wants another proof but in the end God in ways that I can't even explain why or how he changed the course things were headed at least the course that Isaiah said they were headed and he healed Hezekiah What would you do by the way if God guaranteed you 15 more years from this date if you knew for sure I I've, I've got 15 years no more no less what would you do with that? How would you live? Hezekiah is given this promise, and God's faithfulness to his people is seen not only in the nation, but in the life of their king himself. God loved Hezekiah. He heard his prayer. He saw his tears, and he healed them. He healed him. Before we go on, though, I want to just side note for a second a couple of thoughts about prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, and, but also prophets who speak God's truth today. You know, when we think about prophets like Isaiah, we're, we're quick to idealize them as well because after all, they do have books of the Bible written after them. And so we sort of have this picture in our mind as if they lived these ideal lives and God was just always protecting them from everything that was bad and everywhere they went, goodness just followed them. What, what an amazing thing it must have been to be called out as a prophet like Isaiah. But the reality is most of us would not want to deal with anything that's required to get your name as a book of the Bible. And Isaiah is a great example of this. Isaiah was not rich. He was poor. He was an outcast. He was constantly in danger. His job was not glamorous nor glorious. What God called Isaiah to do was effectively just to be his mouthpiece. Wherever he went, he was God's mouthpiece. And most of the time, the news he was given to deliver was not good. And as we've also seen, most of the time, the people did not listen and even hezekiah this amazingly faithful king there was no no one like him before or after even hezekiah in the end seemed to turn his his priorities inward and we see this in isaiah chapter 39 another case in the book of isaiah where one of the kings is mentioned and in isaiah chapter 39 basically what's happened is Hezekiah has invited the babylonians. So they're they're the next big kid on the block He's invited the babylonians to come in and hang out Come into jerusalem. Check out my palace. Take a look at the temple while you're in town And isaiah says to him hezekiah. This was not a good choice To bring in your enemies to bring in these idolaters In a few generations after you Babylon's going to come back They're going to carry off all the gold they saw in your palace. They're going to carry off your great great grandchildren as exiles and slaves. And eventually this kingdom too will fall, not to Assyria, but to Babylon. But look at what Hezekiah says. Isaiah's just delivered this bad news. And Hezekiah says, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, Well, at least there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Isn't that just how it often goes? You know, we start to think I'm not sure about these generations coming behind me And we're, we're digging some pretty deep holes in our culture and in our lives But if I start to do the math I'm probably not going to be here to see it when it all goes down, right? Hezekiah is saying that exact thing Well, my great-great-grandchildren are going to have a rough patch But at least there will be peace in my own lifetime Who wants to be a prophet in biblical times? Even hezekiah doesn't get it When he hears the word of the lord By the way, isaiah eventually died in a very violent way Being a prophet is usually not glamorous. It's not an easy job But it leads to my second thought about prophets and this one is an application So how do we know who are the true prophets today? How do we discern between who is actually speaking the truth of god and those who only claim to do it. The answer to that question is similar to what I asked and answered earlier. Only those who are lifting up Christ and Christ alone are the ones we should listen to. Doesn't mean nobody else ever has anything good to say, but if we're going to consider somebody to be a prophet, or if we're going to take their words so much to heart that we're going to orient the direction of our lives and our attitudes and our actions to follow, we better make sure That's a christ-like example because if it's not If they are not christ-like in word speech Attitude and action We should not listen to them. They will not lead us where we want to go But again, god is faithful To his covenant. He's faithful to his people to the end and even today He's still speaking to the hearts of his people through his holy spirit So today as we prepare for our time of invitation in just a moment. Are we listening? And are we listening to the right voices? Are we listening to those voices who are, are set on pleasing and glorifying God first. And not only themselves. Do not be deceived the Bible says. God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. But again the good news is when we sow faithfulness. We reap faithfulness. And there's even more good news. That that covenant we've broken with God Jesus has fulfilled that covenant for us Not only on God's side, but on our side as well Think about why we call Jesus both Savior and Lord Yes, he's our Lord because he is the king Because he's the only one who truly is in control Of everything that's happening in all of the universe And he is the only one who truly has power Over life and death, sin and death But we call him Savior Because God came to us himself in the flesh not only to fulfill his covenant to us but also to fulfill our side of the covenant as human beings that we have broken by living a perfect life, by dying on the cross as our sacrifice, and by defeating death for good through his glorious resurrection so that we can have life forever. Where we failed in the covenant, Christ came through And he sealed the new covenant, not only with his word, not in pen, and not chiseling in stone, but with his blood, the covenant is sealed. Christ is our Savior and Lord, and he's coming back again. And you know what? That's something we don't talk about enough. But he is coming back again, and this time he's not just coming back as Savior, he is coming back as Lord, and everything that has been sown will experience its final reaping, and all that is evil will be destroyed, and all that is good will be redeemed fully, and it will last forever. Today, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Today, would you look to him as the one and only king who is worthy of worship and praise? And today, for those of you who are believers, would you say, yes, I am all in for the good of his kingdom, even in the midst of this messed up world?